Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Moana. For generations, this peaceful island has been home to our family. But beyond our reef, a great danger is coming. Legend tells of a hero who will journey to find the demigod Maui. And together, they will save us all. Maui, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, I am Hero Maui. of men. Wh what? It's actually Maui, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top. Hero of men. Go. I'm not going on a mission with some little girl. This is my canoe, and you will journey to different. Did not see that coming. The ocean is a friend of mine. First, we gotta go through a whole ocean of bad. <gasps> Kakamora. Kako, what? They're kinda cute. And welcome back, Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus, one of the greatest channels on YouTube about video game animation. Our running mate for more than five years of Disney discussions. Hello again, Dan. You flatterer. Hello again. <laughs> now, this is a landmark episode in our uh, Disney series, one of, the, one of their finest yet, I think. And as of recently, my current favorite. Moana, released in late 2016, is the final film from directors Ron Clements and John Musker. This duo brought us The Great Mouse Detective, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet, and The Princess and the Frog. In other words, a couple of charming misfires and several of the crowning glories of Disney history. The movie pulled in about 50% of the insane $1.2 billion box office of Frozen, which is still very successful, quadrupling its working budget. It was also critically acclaimed, fetching a 95% freshness rating, losing to Zootopia at the Academy Awards for Best Animated Film that year, since Disney had bafflingly released two amazing animated films in the same year before a dry period of two years until Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2 at the end of 2018 and 2019, respectively. Now, we're going to go moment to moment this time and take you on the journey with us. And we begin with the Disney logo and the sounds of Polynesian singing voices setting the tone. Uh, this reminded me of the beginning of Frozen, which, uh, um, if you remember, the, uh, the logo's got that kind of um, choral aspect to it. Mm. It seems like Disney looking to this 1.2 billion success are going, right, so if we kind of aim for that each time we can't go too far wrong it's uh the, the little mermaid was big but beauty and the beast was huge mm. yeah so that became their touchstone for the 90s renaissance yeah well sound is such a key element for the disney movies and one of the things that we've talked about why film is such a powerful medium is because it blends visual and audio emotional cues Sometimes well, sometimes not so well, but this is something that since they started doing the the musical style, mm. Disney has pretty much 
got a handle on how to ping the strings mm-hmm. um, using that technique. They can take you to different places yeah. and ages within seconds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think they found that even if, even in a film where they, where it isn't a musical, where they don't have songs that they can try to use for that purpose, that at least trying to, the place that you're going to find the most uh, indigenously inspired music is like the intro now because that's just the best immediate tone setter. But uh, they seem to you. You'll feel those cultural influences strongest in the music, I think, most often in the score, much more than in the songs, even just because, especially in Moana's case, where so many of these songs are like infused heavily with that Polynesian influence, but still sort of like Broadway Mm. hit type songs Mm. like the score and especially these opening moments are really where they can are really where they can drive home the that core influence in a much less diluted way. Yeah, I think the it was an absolute stroke of genius getting the music done by the team that they have, which uh, the fact that they've got Mancina there to get that orchestral size. And also make it feel like carry. a previous Disney. They, uh, yeah. he, he worked on Tarzan uh, as well, so that's why there, there were occasional moments when it, it felt you know, kind of similar. As you folks may remember, I really, really love Tarzan, so it's got that. But um, And then they've got Lin-Manuel Miranda for the, uh, the, the sheer narrative lyrical power that he hmm. brings and, and his ability to tell the story with the with the songs. And at the time he was relatively untested. He had had some small success with a, a, a Broadway play he had done called In the Heights, which is uh, at the time of recording, uh, he's just finishing off the edit on the film he did uh, on this. Uh, but it was just before Hamilton exploded, so they just got in this talented newcomer and uh, you can feel... His, if you're familiar with Hamilton and the way that his um, that the, the lyrics go and, and the structures of his songs, you can feel him in a lot of the uh, numbers in this. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Yeah, and then they've got uh, Obatai Foai, who please forgive my pronunciation of his name, but he's uh, he's from New Zealand and he's Polynesian himself. He's so being able to bring that that tone and the the influences in a a very genuine way gives it that feel that transportive feel i think this has a very black panther uh choice of of who they actually bring in uh in that Every single cast member of a, a, a main character is of Polynesian descent, aside from Dan. Aside from just, I guess, Disney's new lucky charm, Alan Tudyk. That's <laughs> <laughs> some candy. Yeah, uh, he's, he's the chicken, hey, hey. But uh, since that's not technically a person, I guess they kind of get away with it. Although he is also the guy who suggests they eat hey, hey. So he's got that kind of, you know, he's the eater of the E.T. there. But, uh, but that, that's... That's fantastic. That is a uh, a big move for them to actually decide straight out the gate. Let's not just fill this with white people. Yeah, and a big part of that, from as, as far as I can tell, was the influence of bringing in Taika Waititi to write the first draft of the script. Do you know what actually happened there in terms of like what? Because he he Taika Waititi, director of uh, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok. Um, of New Zealand descent uh, did write the first draft mm. and then 
stepped away. He did, yeah. I mean, the, he he wrote the first draft. Um, he had wanted to be involved because he, the way he puts it, he was interested in helping Disney make a movie about people from the Pacific in a manner that treated them with care. And he did put a lot of emphasis on wanting to cast it using Pacifica people, um, which they did. There's... There's not so much, unlike Black Panther, there's not so much of that in the production team. And I think that's Mm. what has resulted in some of the controversy about it. But having that intent at at the core of it was something that I think he brought to the project. Ultimately, he stepped back because he wasn't particularly passionate about the material. And he says he got bored and wanted to do his own stuff. <laughs> and so, his own stuff was Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, ultimately, if this was the the, um, the sort of starter gig that got him Thor Ragnarok, I personally consider that to be a reasonable trade-off. I think he actually would have done Wilder People after uh, after this, because the, hmm. this would have been... A, there's a long wit- uh, tail yeah, the, on the, the production. The point being that him being involved in this meant that Disney knew him yeah, when it came absolutely. to picking a director. And clearly he uh, was able to step away in a way that was, uh, you know, that got him back in the door again. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, so yeah, that was that was his contribution. Mm. And if you, uh, this notably is the first Blu-ray we've seen since The Princess and the Frog, where they went all out to actually show us the production of this film. And thank goodness, mm. because they got to open a window into how much the visiting of the Pacific Islands played into their decision-making when it came to representation mm. and the meeting of the various people. And they, there's these beautifully photographed um, uh, documentary pieces where they're, you know, they're talking about the, how important the ocean is to, uh, to these people and how uh, there was one guy who moved to New Zealand and then didn't have the ocean sounds anymore around him. So when he woke up, he was weirded out and frightened mm, because yeah. it, it ultimately it's so key to them it's 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 something that they convey doesn't separate people but binds them mm, yeah and yeah. they did put a lot of effort into consulting with pacific islands people and and talking to tribal elders and uh, anthropologists from that area and mythologists and people who really knew that culture and live that culture every day most importantly because they wanted to bring that element of experience into it and they they actually created something called the Oceanic Story Trust which I've done a bit of digging and unfortunately it doesn't seem to exist anymore but um, the, the, that lasted well it was it was five years worth of research okay. That was that was how long it was there for. Oh, I thought they just created it on the launch of Moana. Or some no, sort no, of no. They, they created it when they started the okay, research. Okay. It was so that they could bring all these people in and pay them to right be effectively sensitivity readers on a huge scale. Okay, that makes um, absolute sense. And yeah. and I think that putting that effort in and making sure that they had those insights is what has helped Moana to be Moana Moana I got sorry. told off a while back for saying Moana okay. um, <laughs> is is what has helped Moana to be that sort of it, I mean Disney's progress on indigenous cultures has been 
slow, slow. shall we say. <laughs> um, I, I don't think there is any getting away from that. Mm. You know, as, as late as Frozen, there was <laughs> criticisms of As late as Moana. Used. As late as Moana, there was, yeah. I mean, as late as TBD. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, as late I'm, as Insert Disney Film that just came out here. <laughs> there, there is progress there, and if you compare what's current with what has been yeah. then you can definitely see how things have moved forward and and it's by doing things like forming the oceanic story trust and, mm. and consulting with people that will help them continue to do that um and i know that there has been sort of criticism and there's some really good articles by people from within that culture who are kind of they're torn, you know, they like what some of what's been done, some of what's how things are presented, they're a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, I've got some links to some articles that you can put in the show notes for people to have a look at. But um, particularly, uh, there's an article on Medium by a chap called Richard Wolfram, Wolfgram, which is called Moana and Resistance Spectating, which is definitely worth a read. Uh, Vanity Fair had an article on the Oceanic Story Trust itself, which is really interesting and goes into a lot of depth about who they are and what they did. Said it before, Vanity Fair are getting good. Yeah. Um, and um, a lady called Arietta Rika did a piece for the BBC about the uh, the Polynesian tattoos, not specifically how they were used in the film, but how Disney then put them on Maui costumes, um, which is you, what you're doing there is effectively taking someone else's tattoo, which is the story of them, mm-hmm. and putting it on yourself, which is like, that's a huge no They took exact tattoos of actual people. Well, no, they like. took, as in they took, Maui's tattoos and put yeah. them on the costume. Okay. So, but but the the point being that wearing tattoos as a costume is is kind of it sort of poops on the whole purpose of those tattoos, a representation of you and your history and your family and and who that is. Yes, no. Um, and it's not the same as just putting on a costume. Absolutely, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and Aria Tarika actually is that she's a Samoan storyteller and um, she has a website. If anyone's interested in in looking at. Uh, the stories actually from the voice of somebody mm. who's who's from that area. Again, I'll give Alex the link. For so, are you able to uh, kind of go into what what people had a problem with? Was it specifically the merchandising? Or uh, the, the merchandising was a big part of it, and I think that can kind of adequately be summed up by a comment you made earlier, which is Disney's gonna Disney. <laughs> Disney gonna <laughs> Disney. Disney gonna Disney. Sorry, <laughs> um, and uh, it's. It's not for me to say that it's okay for Disney to do that because ultimately they're not doing it to me. No. Um, but I think the the essence of what a lot of people who've talked about it have said is that if this gets Polynesian culture into the conversation and puts it out there in a way that it gets people interested in it enough to start doing their own research and, and finding out more accurate representations of it, then in the grand scheme of things, that's a good thing. Um, and ultimately, if if by doing this and by funding uh, the Oceanic Story Trust for however long it was that they did and providing people from uh, indigenous cultures with capital particularly paying them to do this rather than exploitatively getting them to do it for free or anything like that giving them credits that they've worked on disney movies that then gives them clout to 
tell their own stories in their own way without having to compromise because they're under this kind of inevitable power dynamic that you you can't get out from under mm. when you're working with a corporation as big as Disney. Um, then that is kind of the seed of a good thing. And this is what I mean about the, the progress being slow, but there. Mm. And I completely yeah. understand the perspective of people for whom it is not enough and it's still frustrating. I do get that. Mm. Um, I think the the guts of what most people seem to have felt is that the the bits that focused on Moana and the bits that focused on the cultural presentation, the costumes, the settings, that kind of stuff. The oral they, storytelling. There exactly. were a lot of people who were very pleased with how um, yeah. Tala at the beginning is telling us the Polynesian stories as though to children. Yeah. And we are effectively the exactly. children seated. They, In fact, Disney very deliberately place us in the position of young Moana, sort of excitedly you know, leaning forwards and, and, and getting this gripping story, while other kids cry around us yeah. because they're uh, <laughs> just not able to, to, to be ex- as excited and are overcome by fear. Indeed. But yeah, the, the aesthetic of it and the, the story that it's telling of a, a girl who is embracing this pull to the ocean and, and going out there and being an adventurer, which is, mm. is really, really key to her character, that seems to have gone over better than things like, for example, the presentation of the the literal myths, the way that Maui is presented, because he's in in Polynesian myth and what I understand of him is filtered through the fact that I was a Big into mythology when I was a kid, which listeners of the are. show will know. <laughs> yeah, still am, but hugely into mythology as a kid. Um, and my a, a sizable portion of my family lives in New Zealand. My mum went out to Australia with her parents when she was quite small. They lived there for a short while and then they went over to New Zealand and she grew up there. Um, and then came back to the UK as a uh, as a young adult. And my I have several aunts and uncles and cousins who were all born out there and still live there. And I had storybooks sent to me about Maui told by various different people. I've got a gorgeous illustrated one by the singer Kiriti Kanawa. Uh, the Land of the Long White Cloud, yeah. Um, so the the version of Maui that I know is very much filtered through the New Zealand perspective, but essentially he's he's not the big butch hero that he's presented as here he's more like a nancy he's a a trickster he's a skinny little teenager the youngest of several brothers who are all bigger and butcher than he is and the whole point is that when he is presented with problems he overcomes them generally speaking using brains rather than brawn and so he's not thor he's loki yeah or more specifically he's miles or peter Spider-Man, yeah, yeah. who is the Anansi analogue in the Marvel mm. cinematic, well, the Marvel universe. Absolutely. And the the way that he's been personified here, I think, is, is sort of to make him make more sense as a hero to Western eyes, because what we're more used to in, in mythical terms, if you take the, the literal superhero aspect out of it is, is Hercules, Hercules, directed exactly. by Musker and Clements, played yeah. by The Rock. <laughs> exactly. So it's that Hellenic Greek myth, the, you know, the big broad-shouldered hero who's mm. a bit of an egotist and, and a bit full of himself. Okay. Um, and so that 
I think a lot of people saw that and went, well, that's not Maui, and that made them a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. And there's, you know, they've taken some of the liberties with some of the mythical presentations. Tefiti and that that myth is a creation of the story. Okay. And uh, there are other very prominent goddesses specifically who are left out of Maui's story, which some people felt really ought to have been included considering how feminist they were trying to make the story. They did a... uh, One positive is making Motanu, uh, the island, fictional rather than trying to tell the story of a a specific island and getting everything wrong. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. And that allowed them to blend some of those uh, cultural aesthetics Mm. without anybody saying, well, you've got that and that's from Samoa and that and that's from Hawaii and that and... it's a double-edged sword, sense. though, because ultimately when you start playing around with like this, well, it's a fictional island, you're still effectively mm. playing with the pieces of other mythologies. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So it's, yeah. uh, again, Disney gonna Disney, and this is the... I think, honestly, I feel like this is the best they could have done in 2016, looking forward to what they can do in 2026. Yeah, and I think as with, with the greatest respect in the world to Musker and Clements who have a long history of creating some of the my favorite Disney stories mm. ultimately they are part of the old guard they are the old white guys who are gradually moving away from this and hopefully making space for other people to come in and, and tell their stories with a more authentic voice the men who took over from the nine old men yeah yeah indeed yeah like at the end of the day, that like cultural appropriation is always a really, it, it is a very complex, nuanced topic that is often made not that in conversation. And this is this is at the end of the day a film made by two old white guys, funded by a company run entirely by old white guys, to be sold, packaged and sold to appeal to a Western audience. And like when you have that situation, no matter how much effort they put in, I think there is a ceiling on how like how good a job they can realistically do at depicting faithfully a story that is not inherently theirs. Mm. But it is still so encouraging to see that for this big, huge Western corporate entity putting in a lot of effort to try to respectfully depict a different culture that that is actually becoming a priority Mm. is like, it's still baby steps. It's still a step along the way toward a much better like future, but like, thank goodness it's a step forward at least. Mm. And if it, if it sees them and encourages them to use this world dominating position that they now have to start picking up and distributing things um, like, like little films that come from, the non-mainstream culture. So, you know, just picking something at random, and I'm I, not that Disney distributed this, but things like The Breadwinner, things like Mouse Song Guard. of the Sea. Mouse Guard would be awesome. The chorus of Twitter right now is, God damn it, Disney, you're, you're destroying all of these wonderful little projects that were happening when Fox were running their own things, and now look at this, Disney are ruining everything. And it's distressing because they're not wrong. Wonderful projects were and are still being shut down. And simultaneously, they are putting out films like Moana, like Black Panther, like Captain Marvel. Inspirational films that do measurable good. It is possible, though it is a juggling act, to hold disapproval and approval. For an empire this vast and multifaceted and complex and nuanced. Disney do bad things and we should discourage them from that. Disney do good things, and we should encourage them in that. And also, 
keep those monopoly rules in place in case our disapproval doesn't do anything. It is a mistake, I feel, to put a great big badge on it that says, only bad, and it also... I am not going to be the one defending a multi-billion dollar corporation and going, stop bullying Disney! Disney going to be fine. They can take it. Yeah. They can it's, take it. I, I would your, recommend your anybody who hasn't yet, uh, and I feel like we've, we've, I've probably recommended this video before, probably in the Pocahontas episode, uh, Lindsay Ellis tends to make some wonderful videos about Disney films and Disney productions, and she made one, I believe it's titled uh, Pocahontas Was a Mistake, and Here's Why. Mm. But that that... In that video, particularly, she compares uh, Pocahontas and Moana's approach, since those stories are fundamentally actually quite similar structurally, and compares Disney's approach to depicting other cultures and how cultural appropriation like works and how cultural appropriation does not necessarily inherently have to be bad. But it, it's a really good way to, if you are not used to looking at cultural appropriation as a complex, really nuanced topic, I think that video is a very good place to start kind of getting an idea. Yeah. And I highly recommend anyone watch them because it's also just her videos are just always great. Absolutely. That was actually going to be my closing statement, but... <laughs> No, 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 that's that's cool. It's it's good that we got it in there organically. Mm. And in terms of the the progress that's being made, again, as we've said, it's small steps, but you can see in the things they tweak for these live-action remakes, you can see where they've picked up, okay, that was not good. Let's see what we can do to improve that. Absolutely. I I appreciate this film in two very different ways, and it it is hard to I, I think the thing that i think about most of this movie is how to square my two opposed feelings to this because on the one hand like moana when you get down to it isn't really it is not a polynesian story this is a very disney story that has been heavily flavored with polynesian imagery and culture but you could swap out a lot of the proper nouns in this movie and the story would still work on the other hand as a Disney story, it is one of my favorite ones they've ever made. Like, I love this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Me too. This is, uh, as with Alex, this is my current favorite Disney. It's in my yeah, top it's, three it's up there for mine movies. too. And that's not just like it is having to fight a lot <laughs> of amazing films to actually maintain that top spot. It's like you know, there, there's tangles leaping in from the side, and then there's. Uh, the Lion King going, what about me? I was always so fantastic. I was the king. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you've, you've got um, the Princess and the Frog, this this romantic view of, of what 2D hand-drawn animation by Disney in the modern era could be like, and then that being effectively the last one. Mm-hmm. But, and this is one of my notes, and it'll, I suppose, move us on to actually talking about Moana. Um the opening sequence in this with baby Moana uh, encountering the sea, the sea as a character, and this... I, to use the word beautiful sells short the, the, the measure of beauty captured here. Because what we're looking at is nature you know, drawn and, and, and pulled together by computer and marshalled, and it, nothing that we're seeing is real, but it is a version of something that we know to be real, and that, uh, you know, on a granular level, down to our DNA, we've been able to look at the sea and the sky and, and feel moved by the place we live. And by place, I mean the whole world, our home. 
We just only see a little bit of it. And infant Moana is ourselves at our most innocent. She's us before civilization gets its oar in. And she's our children. So when she goes out to the ocean, it's us going out to meet the world. I suppose it's almost the beginnings of a symbiotic relationship. It's call and response. Yeah. This is one of the ways that we know something is alive. One of the ways that that something is animate is that it responds. Mm. And it's... It, Moana means of the ocean, so they, they have set out to make this a story about the, the, a girl who, you know, while it is, as you say, a, a Disney story, it is a story about a girl who is one with the ocean mm-hmm. and wants to be there out in this, but they can't really put a, words to the pull that she feels. But this sequence moved me to tears the moment I saw it, within seconds of really starting this movie, and... It's so overwhelming that it made me feel like if we never get any more hand-drawn animation again, it's okay. It's in good hands. Now, I have talked and talked and talked a hole in the ground about my lamenting of Disney effectively abandoning quietly this art form by the roadside and just moving on without saying a word about it. And how with them making uh, checks notes all the money... Right now, they, they literally can't point to that and say, well, it's, it would cost us a lot of money and it wouldn't you bring that much. You can afford it. You can afford it, and it is your duty to. However, that they don't, while it is tragic, that doesn't mean that they have simply decided to follow cheap trends. This is a pursuit of something very stirring on a soul level. Like the, the, What they're giving us is special and it is a cut above most animated films still I think they, they do their, their desire to honour that history that they have is still there while they may not be putting financing into full length hand drawn 2D motion pictures you still see it in things like the intro to this where they tell the myth in a, a 2D hand drawn style it's as long as the skills are still being maintained and the inspiration that comes from the things they make is encouraging people to continue to make 2D hand-drawn stuff albeit obviously on not on the the investment level that Disney would be able to put into it then it will still be preserved and and that will be there if it needs to be drawn on later one of the things, honestly, that made me chuckle when we were watching the audio commentary of the film was Musker and Clements talking about how complex and intricate the CG animation was. But it was the fact that they weren't talking about it from the perspective of someone who does it and knows how complicated it is. Mm. They were doing it from the perspective of somebody who had stood there watching someone do it, going, "Bye." You're a magician! How are you even doing this? So like they a, just sounded baffled by the whole process. So it's like a grandfather talking about his granddaughter's skills on a laptop. Yeah, exactly. 
actually, there was a point where I just thought, yeah, this is kind of sweet. But it's amazing that they managed... The last film they did was The Princess and the Frog, the mm-hmm. pinnacle of 2D animation. Yeah. So they're like, okay, so we're just going to go out and the last thing we're going to do is... Um, what's that? Checks notes again. The pinnacle of 3D animation. Because <laughs> I, I was watching this and thinking... Can you get better than this? Uh, obviously, y- you can, and again, 2026, that we're going to see it better. But uh, like the just little details, like when when she's really close to Tamatoa's claws, and he's like sort of holding her. Just the texture on those crab claws is jaw dropping. The water couldn't look more beautiful if you tried. It's the- true. I like. I this is maybe the first Disney film that I've actually been really happy was in 3D and if I had the choice between one or the other would say no do it in 3D definitely mm. just if for the water and landscapes alone yeah. this movie is just like a feast for the eyes and just, it's interesting if you if you look up Eric Goldberg Moana pencil test mm-hmm. like Eric Goldberg just a Disney Renaissance animator he animated Genie he actually animated Maui's tattoos as well in this Mini film Maui. like you can find his uh uh, you can find like some early hand-drawn pencil tests he did for this movie, specifically like uh, Baby Moana meeting the ocean scene. So you can see like 20 seconds of that as a like classic hand-drawn feature hmm. in pencil, and it's really cool seeing the A B comparison. But it's like it's not the same. It feels different hmm. in a way that like I think the 3D captures something special that 2D the 2D does not. I'm imagining something that looks a bit like Lilo and Stitch, obviously because of the uh, the Polynesian background and the fact that Eric Goldberg tends to make everything sort of gorgeously rounded. Yes, uh, and uh, yeah, Lilo and Stitch has that opening on the beach with Pudge. The is it Pudge? It's, it's a bunch of fish swimming in the uh, sea. So I, I can imagine it and picture it in finished 2D animation, and I do feel like. It would be reductive of us to say they should have stuck with 2D whilst the theme of this film is to journey outwards and to see what other uh, lands can be uh, reached. To the future, there you are. You'll be okay. We 
time you'll learn just as I did You must find happiness right where you are I like to dance with the water The undertow and the waves The water is mischievous ha! I like how it misbehaves The village may think I'm crazy Or say that I drift too far But once you know what you like Well there you are You are your father's daughter Stubbornness and pride Mind what he says but remember You may hear a voice inside And if the voice starts to whisper To follow the father's star Why not that voice inside is who you are? The village believes in us. The village believes the island gives us what we need. And no one leaves. So here I'll stay. My home, my people beside me. And when I think of tomorrow, there we are. I'll lead the way. I'll have my people to guide me. We'll build our future together. There we are. Every path leads you back to where you The Uncomfortable World and the Hero's Journey beginning is Moana's life on Mata Nu, and they go out of their way with this opening song to, <laughs> again, holding two things in, 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 in your hands at once. Uh, Moana's uh, dedication to her people and the fact that she you know, does love this life. And at the same time, she's, her eye is drawn to the, her grandmother standing by the shore, but also her eye is drawn to the sea. She, mm-hmm. Since she was a baby, she's wanted to go out there that's that's the pull and so so the whole song is, is uh it's got that thing where when people um sing across each other in broadway musicals where when one person's singing one thing almost ignoring the other person so when <laughs> moana goes and no one leaves it's like are you gonna address this nope keep singing <laughs> and i that, love this sequence so much for that reason it, yeah. that it makes you feel the same way the same thing moana is like oh we're being introduced to this island and its culture this is neat and cool i can see why you like this but Mm. the film like the cinematography and the main character's attention is constantly kind of being pulled Mm. just sort of past like what to what's in the background where the ocean is and just sort of focusing on that a little bit and being drawn toward it and throughout the song constantly little moana is just sort of kind of wandering toward the water and getting picked up and steered back toward the island Mm. like i i love this whole sequence it's so good me too and the the fact that she's sort of constantly being pulled back from the water and the fact that it's in this montage which is teaching us and her all about this sort of history and, and the culture. And the way it's framed is it's she's not so much in an uncomfortable world. The world is mm. not uncomfortable in its current state. Yeah. Exactly. It's just that she feels this dual draw. She's got responsibilities which she wants to live up to, but she's also got this inner pull out there. 
that's a difficult thing to frame without making the world feel small. She's heard her I Want song to me is very similar to Belle's mm. in, in Beauty and the Beast. But the whole point of Belle is that her world is small and it's she wants the expanse of fiction. That's what she wants to escape into. That is not Moana's issue. She doesn't want to run away from her responsibilities. She wants to fulfill her responsibilities in a different way that is true to her. In some of the uh, earlier test versions of this, uh, there was much more of a push for her to be like a Mulan-style character who was uh, very accomplished at sailing and she had like five brothers who were all also good sailors and, and it was like no Moana know your place and it was about a girl breaking out of the bonds of the patriarchy mm. which it's almost unusual for them to go we don't need to do this we actually we're telling a different story here and it's not about uh, you know patriarchy bad girls being allowed to do things good even though that is also a subtext of the film, especially when she goes up against Maui mm. and he's like, oh, you're, you're a fun girl. I'm just going to put you to one side and I'm going to go do all the stuff. Mm. But I think the fact that the root uh, deity, for want of a better word, the, the, the underpinning myth that they have at the heart of this particular mm. story is Tefiti, is an, an earth goddess, a mother goddess mm. who, who provides fertility and... Um, uh, life and beauty and support for everybody who lives on this island means that you've already set up a culture where there isn't necessarily that very restrictive patriarchy to kick over. Yeah. They already live in balance with nature, so it's uh, it, it, it isn't something that needs to be upset necessarily. Relatively so, although obviously they do bring in the idea that the 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 balance that has been taken away a little bit is in uh, Tui's decision to that stay. they will not travel anymore. Yeah. And it's not just Tui's decision. They they, they as a, as a it's whole, been for yeah. a thousand years. Those rocks yeah. on the hilltops stacked up yeah. since they settled on the island. And this actually dates back to Polynesian history they went out of their way to go, right, so about 3,000 years ago, they stopped and stayed on these islands, Mm. and then a 1,000 years later, they started to move again, and that actually happened, so they set Moana around that time. Yeah, they call it the long pause, but although apparently it would appear that it was more that they kind of went back and re-explored some of the the stuff that they'd left rather than moving forward. Um, They didn't stop voyaging completely, but the the big colonisation of those last few islands, yeah, Mm. there was a break in between. For the purposes of this westernised story, though, they stopped. Yeah, indeed. There is emphasis put on the fact that Tui's decision and his uh, resistance to Moana going out beyond the reef is because of fear, which Mm. is an imbalance. To the point where he, when he finds out about her discovering the boats, is all ready to go and burn the boats and Mm. destroy one of their three options. Yeah, yeah. But very significantly, and I'm I'm kind of... Is is it okay if I just leap to the end to make an important point quickly? You can. Okay. So it was very significant for me that, that Moana's mother points out to her that her father had that 
voyaging cool. instinct yeah. as well. And it was an accident and, and fear and trauma that stopped him from following that impulse. <laughs> and him not wanting Moana to be hurt is a big part of why he tries to curb the impulse in her. But at the end, when they, you know, the people who want to stay, stay, and the people who want to go on and voyage go with Moana, mm -hmm. her parents both go with her. They are embracing, and particularly her father is embracing that urge in himself again. Thus getting over his freeze response. Exactly. Okay. And this leads us to uh, Tala, uh, played by Rachel House, uh, who folks may remember from seeing as Topaz in... Thor Ragnarok, she's Jeff Goldblum's second-in-command, uh, the one with the sort of big melty staff thing who's like... But the arena's mainframe for the obedience discs have been deactivated and the slaves have armed themselves. Oh, I, I don't like that word. Which, mainframe? No. Why would I not like mainframe? No, the... Uh, yes word, yes word. Sorry, the prisoners with jobs have armed themselves. Okay, that's better, that's better. And it's like, wow, a searing indictment of the prison system. That's uh, that's topical and fun in a Disney movie. And, and yeah, fucking love that stuff. And, and that's why Thor Ragnarok is well, one of the many reasons why it's magnificent. But, um, yeah, Rachel House was also in Hunt for the Wilder People. Again, directed by Taika Waititi of Thor Ragnarok and What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, she's got... This amazing kind of dry New Zealand sense of humour, which, I mean, if you watch uh, Taika Waititi films, pretty much everyone in his films has got the same <laughs> kind of sense of humour uh, as that. But House comes in here and plays a woman considerably older than her and gives her this immense gravitas. And this is one of my favourite crones in fiction. Mm. And that takes a lot because there's a lot of crones she's up Yeah, against. one of the things that I, I love about how she's presented is that she has this lack of frailty. Yeah. Like there's a way she stands on the, the edge of the water and the way she dances. It's, just, it's like she's so much a part of this island and a part of this culture, you could not knock that woman over if you tried. Even though she has the uh, walking stick, but she only needs that on land. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it seems like once she's in the ocean, she's able to move fluidly with it, and there's something very natural about her mm. behaviour. And obviously since she becomes the Kenobi spirit to... to uh, she's a Kenobi, but also Yoda to... Um, uh, Moana and manages to get her moving the first time her death while it is tragic is the only thing that could actually have prevented her son from burning the boats to overcome that anger and fear with sadness because mm. he doesn't then go and burn the boats yeah. and she is the person who comes to Moana when she discovers who she is at the end there's a a wonderful sense of acceptance about her, which this counters fear of old age, for me at least. The idea that you can still have enough of your marbles and be able to help and inspire. Helping uplift the young to replace you and forge ahead, rather than, you know, criticising them day and night, forcing them down out of fear. And just keep things moving on in in a, some kind of semblance of natural order. But while I was watching it, I also just started going, "Oh my god!" Because something she said allowed me to realize a thing or two. Moana says, "Why are you acting weird?" And Tyler replies, "I'm the village crazy lady. That's my job." 
what she's doing is suggesting that the balance that they hold here is in fact an imbalance and you are perceived as being crazy for saying that by people who are heavily invested in the system people who invest in the status quo but ultimately to be able to challenge an imbalance that is perceived as a balance to be able to push things towards a new state of balance it makes you the shakespearean fool the uh, uh, the, the wisest person in king lear is um is is the fool is is the person who has the best uh, the sharpest perspective on events but what i love about her is that she's not angry about it she's not pushing everybody she's just nudging moana she's just getting the right person to do the right thing nudging is something that I I really like about her character. I, I like that there's sort of an unspoken but really deftly implied history of communication between her and Tui. Mm. As, like, you can tell, like, they are still in a loving relationship. They clearly hold very different perspectives on, on what their people should be doing. And you can even see it in this opening song number. One of the times Moana sort of discovers the boats and is playing on them and gets pulled back. You see Tui as he's sort of carrying Moana back look over at uh, look over at Tala this sort of with this look of you showed her the boats didn't you and she looks back with sort of like yeah I did <laughs> like sort of thing <laughs> to where like you can tell they've disagreed about this a lot of times and she is like defiantly still going to like I'm going to keep nudging her toward these boats and he just looks exhausted. <laughs> there is a really key visual storytelling element to this as well and it's in the necklaces when you see the ancestors the shell locket that tala has Mm -hmm. and the tooth 
necklace that Tui has mm-hmm. are one and the same thing. And when they land and a group of them settle, they hand that necklace over to the next leader who's going to take the voyagers out. And it's it seems like there's this history of a balance between voyager and settler where they're not in opposition to each other, but they complement each other. And that necklace has been separated out into its two elements. And it feels like that's that's the point. This is not right that these two things have been forcibly uh, separated and that the settled life has been push-promoted over voyaging. Mm. And the end is recombining them. And effectively, the voyaging element has been given to Tala just to safeguard, and she then gives it to Moana. It's mm. it's the Japanese yin-yang symbol she's got it around her neck. It looks very like it. The yeah. ocean and the sky. Yeah. And um, then she meets a guy who's got a giant tooth necklace, and the two of them together are able to establish this new balance. Mm. That guy being Maui. <laughs> yes, yeah. although Maui's tooth necklace looks a little bit more... Gross. Yeah. Like that big one in the middle? Where did he get that from? There's a molar. Is that his own? He wrenched it out of a whale. Whales don't have teeth. That's gross. They have like strainers, <laughs> don't they, to get the plankton. I think this is also probably the, uh, um, like I said earlier, the, the, the this film moved me to tears within moments while uh, watching it. But um, watching it again today, the, the songs have a main line straight to my heart. And, and uh, her I Want song, uh, which is reprise later, has this elemental i mean of literally elemental quality because uh, she is water they they do use though in the music there's some very particular techniques that i think really achieve that and one thing that that you mentioned earlier alex was the the way they balance percussion and vocals because if mm. you if you have percussion and drumming is obviously very very key to the way these songs sound but if that becomes too overwhelming, it will drown out lyrics and it will drown mm. out the vocal component. But they they often start a musical sequence with drumming. And when Tala shows Moana the boat, she has to drum in order to bring up the vision. Mm. And from a spiritual stroke psychological perspective, drumming knocks on the door to open something up. And they use that as a an entry point for every musical sequence and every important uh, visual sequence in a way that feels organically, I want to say functional, but that's not what I mean because that makes it sound too basic. But it, it does exactly what they intend it to do. It's noteworthy what you said before about uh, Tala and uh, Tui being um, opposed from the first draft onwards, it was going to be these two effectively embodying the two aspects of Moana's uh, psyche, as in the, the pull outwards and the uh, urge to remain. And she didn't have a mother for the longest time. And then I think uh, Musco and Clements must have gotten wind of the fact that people were saying, hey, isn't it weird how all of these Disney princesses and characters just don't have mothers? They get seemingly taken out of the picture. And so they gave Moana a mother. She's not prominently in it. She is a she is there to to explain Tui's backstory to, so that we can uh, sympathise with him more. But it's something, and it would be nice moving forwards for Disney to allow characters to have 
one or even both mothers and fathers preferably as well mm. i think one of the re- one of the reasons that disney princesses tend not to have mothers is because the story requires them to do things that in storytelling function mother is there to say oh no you don't that's very dangerous <laughs> you stay here where it's safe or give the 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 flip side of that is to give the daughter tools and strategies in order to deal with the shit that's coming over the mountain which if she had those strategies already it takes the punch out of the story so i think having the mother extracted is something that that kind of enables them to do that with impunity which is one of the reasons i really like the fact that moana's mother is here specifically although she doesn't do a great deal she is that key connective tissue between Moana and her father and she points out that they are very similar and because they're very similar that's why it's hard for them to talk to each other sometimes and also one other really important thing that she does is when Moana is leaving she sees her going and just wordlessly gives her provisions for the journey she's effectively saying okay I am giving you my blessings to go and do this thing because I recognise how important this is. And having that that uh, that backup, that knowing that she is doing the right thing for her people. This is not an adventure-seeking hero who sneaks away in the middle of the night because he desperately wants to see the world outside. This is a girl who is dedicated to doing the right thing by her people and it means the world to her that the people she's trying to help give her these little messages of support to say we recognize what you're doing for us and we appreciate it i do love that they made some room for that brief moment mm-hmm. in her in her departure yeah. i've been staring at the edge of the water long as i can remember never really knowing why i wish i could be the perfect daughter but I come back to the water No matter how hard I try Every turn I take Every trail I track Every path I make Every road leads back To the place I know Where I cannot go Where I long to be See the line where the sky needs to see It calls me And no one knows How far it goes Song. What is wrong with me? 
And as I said before, this is a hero's journey. Effectively, it's a girl who goes on a hero's journey. That You said we've discussed this in the past. One of the key elements of the hero's journey, as outlined by Campbell, is the, the something that has to give you a kick out the door. Because yeah. the hero doesn't really want to go. Although the world he's in is uncomfortable, he's not especially motivated to leave it a lot of the time. Bilbo style. Exactly. Whereas in the, the heroine's journey... It's a cage she's trying to break out of. Exactly. There's some... You know, there's the, the, the pull for her is within. And it's, it's something that often she's the one who has to do the kicking Mm. in order to get people to let her leave. And from that perspective, that's exactly what Moana has to do. But it's it's then kind of softened sort of by the fact that she's not like the most excellent sailor who's being prevented from going out and doing her thing. Mm. She's not very good. Her determination is to learn. And I like the fact that that emphasizes, first off, it emphasizes her youth. And secondly, it emphasizes her potential to have an arc. I think that that framing of the heroine's journey of she's already awesome, she just has to convince everybody else to let her out the door. That's the root of where we get this persistent what has become a stereotype of the strong female character, the mm. strong female heroine, who doesn't really have that much of an al- arc. Exactly, yeah. can already kick everybody's ass. Therefore, there's limited potential for her to really do something and mm. learn something. And that Moana has that that capacity to grow is something that I, that really connected for me. Yeah. she meets Maui we've said before that uh, uh, they made him like Thor and there was a a point in Fast and Furious 6 where uh, he's referred to in a text Dwayne Johnson is as Samoan Thor which I was I think he also gets called Hulk and Captain America in that film as well they were positioning that one as their Avengers but this is effectively Samoan Thor and it feels like a lot of Maui's the way he was modelled on screen and what he does and his actions were well, did stem from they they got Dwayne Johnson early on. They didn't interview anyone else. Jason Statham came in and was turned away. Um, <laughs> they went out of their way to to make this guy 
The Rock, but a fun, cuddlier version of The Rock. And there was a while when he was bald and the um, uh, Pacific uh, Islanders said, no, 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 Maui has a lot of hair. Mm. It's, it's, it's luxurious and glorious and they, they, they gave that back to him. The, uh, I relish the fact that they actually depicted him as someone who isn't built like Thor. He doesn't have this, you know, westernized, like, perfect six-pack body. Uh, he is much more the, uh, um, the, the body type of a Samoan or a Maori. And, uh, and frankly, there aren't enough positive examples of heavyset heroes. So this representation matters. He's also agile with that as well, which is uh, unusual in the depiction. Yeah, and I think although, again, the, the, some of the criticism was on the fact that it's a stereotypical depiction... Mm. They're making the... Again, it's the visual portrayal in a westernised story. It's amped up visually making him larger than life. He is big, he is overbearing. It To me, his size is more to do with the fact that he's this hero who has clay feet. Yeah. And his uh, mini-me Maui... <laughs> to happen, uh, is uh, was... Um, 2D hand-drawn animated by Eric Goldberg, as we said. And effectively, it was described by uh, Musker and Clements as Jiminy Cricket with Attitude, which makes me think of Poochie. But but at the same time, uh, it it allows us to, uh, you know, we're we're greeted by this guy who is kind of an obnoxious asshole straight away, although he's obviously kept, you know, gets a lot of mileage from being voiced by uh, one of the most charming men in the entire world. Uh, mm-hmm. But we get his internal story through um, mi- uh, Mini Maui, and, and, and effectively he's playing his conscience, and he's able to be of two minds visually on screen for the kids. Mm. Is this, like, altogether taken as a, a batch, like, the best collection of Disney songs in a long time? Because it really feels like it is to me. Since like, uh, I can think of uh, standout frog, songs from every movie, from every musical that's happened in a while, but like as a overall collection, hmm. these are all very strong. I and the, like, the lyrical playfulness is a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't think of one of these that I don't like. Uh, unlike but, Frozen, which has that troll song. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like this, and the fact that all of them do have. I'm guessing because of Miranda's influence, just little story arcs and character shifts built in. They move the plot forward. Like even this one, which is for 90% of it, just a big brag song to, to let you know who the character is. And also because you get the idea, oh, Maui's trying to impress this character. Hmm. But then there's a shift in the lyrics, which like you're being taken along for the ride just as Moana is. There's a shift in the lyrics and there's a line like, I'm going to need that boat, which is still fun. And you're, but you as a listener are like, hey, wait a minute. Wait, what, <laughs> <laughs> wait, what did you say? What was that last line though? Yeah. And then, and then you suddenly realize just like Moana, oh, I'm in a cave because this whole song has been him like trying to impress me, but then also him trying to get me into a cave that he can roll a rock in front of and steal my boat. There's like, that trickster element. Yeah. <laughs> True, and uh, there's only one single line in this whole movie around this point which makes me go, eh. And in 70 years' time, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids will say, what's a tweet? 
And yeah. uh, we'll have to say, well, back in those days, uh, we needed some kind of outlet for the president to rant and sound like an insane person in public. And uh, Twitter seemed to be the best outlet. Yeah, uh, really great way. Like, it's, it's like the reference to MySpace in Iron Man. Like, it's, it's very uh, dependent on that thing still being around many, many years from now and not being the least, thing that yeah, gets... People being aware yeah. of what it is and what it means. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I suppose the fact that the, the bird element is incorporated means that they can just go, OK, it's just a thing. But He's referring in, to the fact that it's a bird. Imagine whatever was trendy in... Uh, and side note, by the way, this goes out the window for Ralph Breaks the Internet. <laughs> My goodness gracious me. More on that next what, time. What was it you said? That was dated before it was released? Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Actually, I'm going to abandon this, this uh, thread here because we will save this juicy material for Ralph Breaks the Internet. But you're absolutely spot on about the the, the songs having that storytelling power, yeah. Dan. The, there's, again, sort of on the theme of, of Maui's character, there's a bit in... Tamatoa's song where he refers to Maui's armor not being tough enough and the mm. fact that he wanted humans to love him and, and all the things he did were geared towards yeah. wanting that. Tamatoa's that, um, song characterizes Maui in a way that we haven't had done throughout the movie so far. Absolutely. And it's it's not a thread that's dropped. Moana picks up on it later on and they talk about, you know, his his rejection by his parents and how that has effectively provided the bedrock for who he's become. Mm. That his self-identity is all tied up with this magical fish hook and the fact that he can get things for the humans and that's the hole that he's trying to fill. And the He has effectively been well, uh, without his hook for the longest time, and then when he gets it back, he is effectively impotent. Exactly. Well, it's, it, he doesn't have control over his identity, mm. so he can't shift that identity in the way that he is supposed to be able to do with finesse and control. Um, and part of what overcomes that for him is Moana reassuring him and having faith in him, but the, the key, and I love this, is that he gets that little hug from his little tattoo self. <laughs> and that's that's all this as well as being his conscience that to me his tattoo represents this little inner self that he needs to listen to and nurture in order to be able to fully integrate who he's meant to be so it's like the end of rocket man yeah yeah <laughs> okay. precisely like that yeah I haven't seen that yet, so I'm just going to go ahead and form a mental picture in my head, and I'd like the two of you to not dispel whatever I come up with. Not, not saying anything, but see it. It is one of the films of the year. We love yeah. it. Absolutely. Got it. So what I believe you were trying to say is thank you. Thank you? You're welcome. What? No, no, no. I, I didn't. I wasn't. Why would I ever say <laughs> okay, that? I, mean... okay. I see what's happening, yeah. You're face to face with greatness and it's strange You don't even know how you feel It's adorable Well, it's nice to see that humans never change Open your eyes, let's begin Yes, it's really me, it's Maui, breathe it in I know it's a lot, the hair, the bod When you're staring at a demigod What can I say except you're welcome for the tides, the sun, the sky Hey, it's okay, it's okay 
just an ordinary demiguy. Hey, what has two thumbs and pulled up the sky? When you were waddling, yay, hide this guy. When the nights got cold, who stole you fire from down below? <laughs> Looking at him, yo. Oh, also I lasso the sun. You're welcome to stretch your days and bring you fun. Also, I harness the breeze. You're welcome to fill your sails and shake your trees. So what can I say except you're welcome for the islands I pulled from the sea. There's no need to pray, it's okay. You're welcome. Ha! I guess it's just my way of being me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, come to think of it, kid, honestly, I could go on and on. I could explain every natural phenomenon. The tide, the grass, the ground. Oh, that was mad. We just messing around. I killed an eel. I buried its guts. Sprouted a tree. Now you got coconuts. What's the lesson? What does it take away? Don't mess with Maui when he's on a breakaway. And the tapestry here in my skin is a map of the victories I win. Look where I've been. I make everything happen. Look at that. Me, 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 Maui. This is, by the way, the second amazing animated movie that we've covered this year with a chase scene heavily inspired by Mad Max Fury Road. It is off the chain. Uh, I was uh, watching it with absolute delight uh, in, in the cinema going, I, I, I hope that none of the children get what this is from. <laughs> I didn't get what this was from. You had to tell me. It's so all over the place. They, they, they captured the, uh, the storyboard artist, obviously, you know, went out of his way to... Because, um, uh, you know, at the time he was crafting this sequence, Fury Road had just come out, so uh, he clearly came back and went, right, we're going to do that with, with what we do here. And he captured... What it is about um, Immortan Joe's wretched, horrible, terrible, uh, uh, oppressive force of war boys. They have these great big, you know, angry machines, but there is a beauty and an intricacy there as well. So the Kokomora, similarly, that this giant, like, floating atoll ship. Of you know, with these multiple, uh, they've got two additional ships on on uh, uh, ropes, also you know, floating beside. Especially with the, with the, uh, the the way that they um, turn a giant conch into a sort of a, a giant foghorn with this with a, a mechanism. There is a dazzling intricacy to that specific design and I, I love this sequence it's it's you could actually com- combine it with the music from Fury Road and it makes for just as compelling a, uh, a sequence it's got the same dynamism as um, do you remember the action sequence in Tangled with the uh, um, c- uh, canyon that gets flooded 
That is very similar. Yeah, similar vibes now that you mention it. And it's a dazzling action sequence because you're very aware of what's going on in the space. Uh, the, uh, the, the it's, it's very clear when things change, when characters move to different areas. And it is conveyed in a way that has this kind of rhythmic, flowing, percussive momentum, which fits with the music perfectly. And, and Mancina kind of you know, pays homage to uh, Junkie XL's score there as well. It's um, it's quite something. It really is. It's very, very well choreographed. And like you said, just the geography of that action sequence helps you to follow every beat of it mm. very easily and get invested in every little twist and turn of it. It's just exquisitely directed action sequence. Uh, then let's move on to Lalotai and uh, Tamatoa, played by Jermaine Clement, who, uh, of, from New Zealand. So again, he kind of fits with that Polynesian descent thing mm. going on. Again, blessed with that incredibly dry sense of humor and, and delivery. And I feel like he was specifically hired for this specific song because of a song on Flight of the Concords called Bowie. Bellies and spies What you doing out there, mom? That's pretty freaky, Bowie Ooh, Bowie Is it cold out in space, Bowie? You can borrow my jumper if you like, Bowie Does the cold of deep space make your nipples get pointed, Bowie? Do you use your pointy nipples as telescopic antenna to transmit data back to Earth? I bet you do, you freaky old bastard, you do you have one really funky sequence spacesuit, Bowie? Or do you have several ch-changes? Do they smoke grass out in space, Bowie? Or do they smoke astroturf? Ooh! Receiving transmission from David Bowie's nipple antennae. Do you read me, Lieutenant Bowie? I said, do you read me, Lieutenant Bowie? <laughs> Do you hear me out there, man? This is Bowie back to Bowie. I'll read you loud and clear, man. Oh, yeah, man! Your signals we come over the screen. How far out are you, man? I'm pretty far out. That's pretty far out, man.
I miss the time when Bowie was on this planet. And he's got this ability, you know, a, a, a talent for mimicry. But at the same time, there's uh, so much personality put into every line of this song. This is a revisiting of the camp Disney villain. The, uh, the, the fabulous Disney villain of the 90s, your Scar, your Ursula, uh, your Gaston. You know, he's singing a great big gloating song. And he's kind of the sideline, like the false villain. He's, a, he's, he's a, an obstacle in this film. Because ultimately, the, the real villain, if you want to say that the person who upset the whole thing and is kind of standing in the way of it being fixed, is Maui. And it requires him to get back with the program of actually dealing with this. And that requires Moana to, to move him around. He's not really a villain. He's just the person that made all of this happen mm. and he has to make amends for it. Yeah, but if you're looking at motivations, ultimately Maui is motivated by, as we, as I said before, this whole sort of feeling of rejection and mm. wanting to, to bring something to the humans, which he then gets very irate that they don't appreciate. Yeah. Tamatoa is somebody who is extremely superficial and wants to slather himself in yellow sparkly stuff in order to look successful and bright and attractive so that he can get free food because this uh, this <laughs> crust of gold that he has attached to him attracts fish which he can then eat without having to go to the bother of actually chasing them and that's what it comes down to mm. folks isn't it give me the shiny golden crust so that i can get free food yeah because when you're rich enough you don't have to pay yeah indeed and this coming at the uh, tail end of 2016, I think uh, the idea of a, a, an obscenely rich cartoon character slathering everything in gold and being really obnoxious. It was nice to see a version of that that was amusing rather than horrifying. Yes, and what yeah. is ultimately relatively easily defeated purely by distraction, which I'll just point <laughs> out my favourite line of Tamatoa's, and a lot of it has to do with Jermaine Clement's delivery, mm, is yep. the, uh, I see what she's done here. She's taken a barnacle and she's covered it with bioluminescent algae. Uh, so it's like <laughs> lampshading this whole ridiculous plot. <laughs> and it just the, the sheer uh, deadpanness with which he delivers it is brilliant. You can't run. Oh, actually, you can. You've, you're full of surprises. <laughs> Indeed, I like that they great. didn't like artificially deepen his voice to make him seem bigger. I like that mm. it's just Jermaine's voice mm. as yeah. a very, very large crab. Yeah, it makes him funnier. Also, I think it, uh, my favorite uh, line in this it, it reminded me of um, Musker and Clements' Aladdin when uh, uh, he says, "Next time, gonna use a nom de plume," which is a crazy line to throw into a song for children. Mm. Um, but you can't expect a demigod to be the decapod, meaning something with ten legs. I love that. I love that as a line. Also, they directly reference Aladdin. You've got the 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 Aladdin's lamp is somewhere in. It's on uh, his back. Tamatoa's hoard. Yeah. The pattern from the magic carpet, carpet appears in a, a rug that they have made out of tapa 
at the island. Which is made of? Which is uh, mulberry bark that they, they work and treat to mm. make it feel like felt so that you can use it for clothes and, and fabrics and things. And also, he literally says in this song, Diamond in the Rough. Nice. Which is not a phrase that's used anywhere except <laughs> Aladdin. <laughs> if you say it nowadays, you're referencing you're Aladdin. You're referencing Aladdin. Did exactly. they even say it in the remake? I can't remember. I was waiting for it, but yeah. I can't remember. I think I, I was asleep did. all the time the new Jafar was on screen. Anyway. <laughs> Great Jasmine. Great Jasmine. Well, Tomatoa hasn't always been this glam. I was a drab little crab once. Now I know I can be happy as a clam Because I'm beautiful, baby Did your granny say, listen to your heart Be who you are on the inside I need few words to tear her argument apart Your granny lied I'd rather be shiny Like a treasure from a sunken pirate wreck Scrub the deck and make it look shiny I will sparkle like a wealthy woman's neck just to say, don't you know? Fish are dumb, dumb, dumb. They chase anything that glitters. Beginners. Oh, and here they come, come, come to the brightest thing that glitters. Mm, fish dinners. I just love free food. And you look like seafood. Always having trouble with his look. You little semi dummy mini god. Ouch, what a terrible performance. Get the hook. Get it? You don't swing it like you used to, man. Yet I have to give you credit for my start. And your tattoos on the outside. For just like you, I made myself a work of art. I'll never hide. I can't. I'm too shiny. Watch me dazzle like a diamond in the rough. Strut my stuff, my stuff is so shiny Send your armies, but they'll never be enough My shelf's too tough, my way mad You can try, 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 but you can't expect a demigod To be the take apart, pick it up You will die, 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 now it's time for you to take apart Your aching heart Far from the ones who abandoned you chasing Gratifyingly, the relationship with uh, Maui never becomes romantic. They, uh, it would have been not so much easy, but it would have been standard to give them 
a romance side of things and um one of the original versions of the story was about Maui and they kind of made it more about Moana as they uh, went forwards and they never lose sight of the fact that this is a 16 year old girl played by a 15 year old girl who turned 16 just as the film launched mm. and the goddamn rock who's definitely old enough to be her father yeah well i think this is as lindsay ellis points out they do fix some of the issues with Pocahontas through this film. Mm. And one of the most ill elements of Pocahontas is the fact that her story has to be told through the lens of the white colonist who's in love with her. Um, So being able to throw that right out the window and just have a chieftain's daughter who is able to be a leader and a person in her own right without having to have that filter through a romantic story Mm. is... Yes, like that. Thumbs up. And being treated like a kid by the like person she's on this road boat trip with. Like I can't remember what where it is in their early conversations where Maui says, like, you're basically eight. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he does say that. And he's he's already sort of when he's first met her, um, he makes references to her as being a princess. You know, she's a chief in waiting. And he's he is diminishing her because he's Bigging up himself. And when that attitude shifts and he is able to compliment her and praise her skill, that's because his own identity issues have started to mm. heal. It's an important element that it comes then in the story. This is entirely tangential. I, I think I'm ready for Disney to stop with the self dunks on their own history <laughs> now. Like it, it was fine for a while, and I appreciate that they are they recognize that we have a lot of old tired tropes that we are going to not use anymore. And but like they don't have to call it out anymore. I don't think. I think we've all accepted that they have moved on. And uh, you don't you don't you only get so many self own points after a while. It does come to a point where it starts to feel like back patting. It starts to feel a little bit like, aren't we awesome that we're not doing this anymore? But you did just kind of put it in there just so that you could reference it. Mm. Yeah. And at this point, it is its own trope now of like how we are intentionally doing the opposite thing. Mm. You thought we were going to do the thing, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I think that reaches uh, maximum obnoxiousness during the princess scene of uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. We'll talk about that next time. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I got problems there. It's not as bad as it could have been, but um, it's reductive at times. Yeah. Again, that, that's... Like they're, they're doing more than just subverting old things, too. Like, you don't, like, so you don't need to... It almost simplifies and cheapens that they have moved on in a way, mm. I guess is what it kind of is now making me feel like after they've now done this many times and that their films have moved on from a lot of those old tropes, not all of them, but from a lot of them calling out the fact that, Hey, this is a thing we used to do that we're not anymore. Like feels like, yeah, you didn't have to say it. You were just doing it. Yeah. <laughs> we were enjoying it. Well, there does kind of come a point, especially where you've got a cast and largely a crew who are of a younger generation where they don't expect to see this kind of thing all the time anymore, where it starts to feel like you're, essential messages you are so lucky that you don't have to have what we had when i was a young <laughs> really person. you young whippersnappers yeah, that's the, their job what i mean is when you're you're putting something in a film for kids saying here we're not doing this thing and the kids are looking at it going that was a thing mm. why was that a thing <laughs> 
we don't even worry about that thing anymore. <laughs> also entirely tangential, but I was just skimming through the wiki real fast and had another thought. Which is going to be the first Disney Blu-ray release that doesn't have like a big loving celebratory John Lasseter is also here moment? The next one. <sighs> I guess, yeah, I guess the next one. It's like a... <laughs> It's it doesn't feel so good to see now and uh I'm looking forward to Frozen I'm looking two. forward to the yeah. I'm looking forward to the last one and there's, that being it. Yeah, there's a, a there's, moment in one of the behind the scenes bits where they've got the mm-hmm. uh, Pacifica Voices choir. All ladies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he makes a beeline for them. He, he just yeah, rushes he in. Just, you just see this blur of a Hawaiian shirt as yeah. he rushes and in he to start kind hugging. Of, he grabs this this poor woman and gives her this sort of it, not obviously an appropriate hug, but one that seems very familiar, considering yeah. that they they can't have met properly yet. They, you know, and I think yeah. even Lyra picked up on the fact that his hand went a little bit further south than it ought to have. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, yeah, good riddance. Lue, 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 lue. Hey, hey, the dumb, gross chicken. <laughs> in the trailer, the, uh, the original teaser trailer for Moana, the, the, the pig was right there front and center, so I was expecting the pig to be along for the ride the whole time. Um, and I, I was wondering this time, do we really need an animal sidekick character? In terms of Hey, Hey? Yeah. Yes, and I will tell you for why. Okay. Right. What? Hey, hey. I have my own conclusions on this as well. Right, well, let's see if you agree with me then. I'm so ready to hear this. Please go. Right. Okay. (laughs) Hey, hey is Moana's fear. Okay. Exemplified in the screaming as soon as he's out in the ocean. (laughs) Exactly. He is the part of herself that her adventure self, having impulsively gone and done this thing that she feels this draw to do, suddenly realises that she's surrounded by ocean on all sides and goes "Ah!" (laughs) and the only way she can keep it quiet is to put a thing over its head so it can't see what's going on and just let him repetitively pace back and forwards to calm himself down And he, but he is, when they do the montage of, of what's going on on the island, you do get, it's not just Tala who is the, here's the person who stands out from the crowd and does slightly odd things. There are a couple of other people as well. There's the little boy in the dance who mm-hmm. does his own thing. I love that. That is awesome. But that, again, is just this little throwaway, you know, th- this is something that pops up every now and again. There are people who don't go with the with what the majority are doing. And Hey Hey is one of them. He doesn't do what roosters are supposed to do. He's Old. He's there when Moana's a baby. How old is that rooster? I don't think roosters live that long. He doesn't um, know how to eat. He doesn't know how to eat. He tries to swallow rocks. He tries to eat everything. I did have um, a note that just says, how is Hey Hey alive? Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> he's a Constant spirit supervision. chicken by this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's that, that kind of impulsive hyperactivity constantly moving, constantly looking baffled and puzzled by everything that's Running going around on. like a headless chicken. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it just kind of, for me, it gives Moana that little element of something that can reflect her inner turmoil mm. in a way that is small and contained and amusing, but there. 
similarly, this is uh, w- what I concluded is very much along those lines. Um, it's when you give a little kid a doll, they change from their role of being a little kid to being a caregiver. They're, yeah. they're like, right, I got to take care of this doll. Um, you know, make sure that it's well fed and da 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 da. And they become, they take on responsibilities as part of their play. When you give a slightly older kid a pet, they then treat that pet like a younger sibling. Mm. And similarly, Hey Hey Here is effectively a little thing for Moana to look after so that she's not positioned as a child way out in the middle of nowhere. She's got responsibilities, and one of those things includes juggling this stupid bird. Yeah, and it allows for that wonderful moment where she outlines her entire plan to Hey Hey and then says, and you understand none of this because, because you, you are, are a chicken. chicken. But the, the whole point of that, again, for me, was that to be able to go and do this very big task she has to be able to contain that part of herself that is terrified and just put it in a box, put a lid on it. And then I'll put that box inside of another box. It's still there. I still love it. I will come back to that later, but I can't have it under my feet right now. I do enjoy that the only behind the scenes quote I have heard from Alan Tudyk on this film is simply, I went to Juilliard. (laughs) At most prestigious chicken acting college. Yeah, Hey Hey is a welcome addition, especially for the children. They didn't overemphasize the, you know, fun little animal sidekick thing, and he didn't talk, and uh, um, Alan Tudyk continues to be extremely uh, amusing. But um, the actual confrontation with Tafiti, it's a a two-step thing. First she tries it and then fails, and then there's the big falling out with Maui and... Tafiti as Takar. Tafiti as Takar, of course, yeah. This is a series and a process that we've seen so many times before. And, you know, the, the, the low point and then the, uh, the abandonment and then the I have to establish what I'm doing again. And somehow, because it reinvokes this song and... The, just the, the the general beauty of what's being conveyed and the reuniting with um, Tala and the, the, the reigniting of the purpose. It's one of the strongest examples of this that I've ever seen. It is, it was so inspiring that I actually, I was uh, busy writing and producing the princess thieves at the time. I wrote a song at this point, for like three quarters of the way through the story, suddenly there was a musical section in it. And it didn't make the final cut because unlike all of the songs in Moana, you could lift it out and it would still be just as... uh, It it would still make absolute sense. But I Am Moana is crucial to this version of the story. This song really encapsulated what the, the whole, the character that effectively gives birth to themselves scenario, the, the being able to self-actualize on film and, uh, and to actually recapture that. And it, it, it simply comes down to that self-doubt and then being reminded of your abilities so far and, and everything just, just just to be given that perspective on yourself and on everyone else depending on you and made all the more powerful by the person who come who comes to give the hero encouragement in that moment not being the one who is responsible for urging the hero to have that moment like 
her grandmother is there and embraces her and expresses acceptance and love for her, regardless of what she chooses to do from this moment, saying, like, if you want to go home, then you can and you should and you are loved. And from there, Moana makes the choice on her own. Mm, absolutely. It is very significant at this point that she go she goes from the ocean chose me to fulfill this task to I am taking this task upon myself. And the ocean does not give her the heart back. She has to dive down and pick it up herself. And I think there's also something really key for me in the way this scene is framed. When she embraces Tala, this combined with the way they mirror each other when they do the dance in uh, Moana's growing up montage Mm -hmm. makes it feel that... Who she's talking to here, although obviously is also it's it's her grandmother and it's the representation of her ancestral line giving her that blessing and giving her that strength. It's also a an older, wiser reflection of Moana herself. It makes me think of her being given this this strength by talking to herself who's already done this if that Mm. makes sense and being able to draw on that to say well i know i can do this then because i have that certainty that i am going to be able to complete this what you're saying there is exactly how i would have ended dark phoenix yeah yeah so much better Mm. i know a girl from an island She stands apart from the crowd She loves the sea and her people She makes her whole family proud Sometimes the world seems against you The journey may leave a scar But scars can heal and reveal just where you are The people you love will change you The things you have learned will guide you And nothing on earth can silence The quiet voice still inside you And when that voice starts to whisper Moana, you've come so far Moana, listen Do you know who you are? Who am I? I am a girl who loves my island And the girl who loves the sea It calls me I am the daughter of the village chief We are descended from voyagers Who found their way across the world And they call me I've delivered us to where we are I have journeyed farther I am everything I've learned and more Still it calls me And the call is out there at all It's inside me It's like the tide Always falling and rising I will carry you here with my heart You remind me That come one
this is one of the only films where there's this big world-threatening menace and she says, I can't do this and gives it back. And no one, as you say, no one says, if you do not do this, no, no one, one will, will and the world will fall to darkness. I mean, that that's Lord of the Rings does it extremely well, but mm-hmm. that's the narrative of every one of these stories. It's yeah. always got to be done and no one else is around to do it. You've got to do it. Yeah. And that almost always seems to be tied with the age-old Chosen One narrative. And she's not told by Tala, you can go home, but there may not be a home left. There, is, there It is suggested that someone else could potentially do this, but she decides she is the person who is going to do this. Mm. That's the important aspect Absolutely. of this scene. And ultimately, she's already performed a very important task in that she's brought the heart here. It is now at the bottom of the ocean, mm. but right next to the island. So, as you say, somebody else could come along and pick that up and put the thing on the thing and save the world. But that's the thing. The only way she is able to put the thing on the thing and save the world... Is because she can identify. Is because... At the beginning of this film, the first thing she does after listening to the story is try to shelter a little baby turtle to get back to the sea. Moana's core discipline, her core talent, the, the thing that defines her is kindness... We've said this over and over and over again. Mm. A quality people never fail to undervalue. The Matrix has a really solid, you're not the chosen one, that's okay, story, where Neo eventually decides to self-actualize. But they never hone in on a quality of his character which makes him suitable. And this is why it always appalls me when Disney get labelled with being simply a capitalist corporation who are seeking a monopoly. Even if they are... If, in their bid for the maximum control of the media we watch, they're teaching kids to be kind and compassionate and protect the vulnerable, they're making it clearer how we could be better. She takes that kindness to Tafiti. It's not about smashing the thing. It's about being able to recognize when just lowering her guard. She has to lower the water at the ocean itself, her symbiotic relationship with nature. That incredibly powerful force that she's connected to this character that's been guiding her the whole way through she has to let that drop to actually approach Tafiti but it's that compassion that allows her to actually do this one Mm. and all of Maui's you know I'm gonna smash this thing and all he was ever doing there was distraction absolutely and and what he does and how he does it is quite key as well the fact that What's happening here is is Takar represents anger mm. at this point, pure rage, because her powers of creation have been stripped away from her. The earth element that she is supposed to be connected with is gone. All she has left is fire. And Maui uses the haka, which is effectively a tool whereby you use the image of anger in order to counter your own fear Mm. and he uses that to distract Takar's anger so that Moana can get close enough to be able to see who she is and that she's hurting. And there was a deleted song just before Tamatoa where uh, Maui uh, teaches her her war face and 
teaches her how to do the haka. And that's effectively, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda made this throwaway remark about it being the the reverse lesson or the false the lesson? The anti-lesson. The anti-lesson. Mm-hmm. Because effectively Maui has been putting on this bravado and the warrior face for so long He's now teaching Moana the wrong thing, and that's not the thing that ultimately saves the day. But they, she ends up learning the anti-lesson from... Tamatoa. Tamatoa. Because his anti-lesson is the superficiality and the be bright and shiny and then everybody will feed you. Yeah. In the end, Maui is able to... like, Even though Maui is attacking here in a way that is ultimately futile... It, just pulling attention for those crucial few seconds to get Moana to her place is playing support. This is the, the same story we keep coming back to that's, you know, a really great new extension of the, uh, the male and female combo is that when the guy can just get the girl to the place she needs to be, she can put the thing on the thing and save the universe. Which is a consistent theme in matriarchal myths and, and matrilineal cultures that the the goddess is the the core and the gods and heroes that she has around her are effectively her her hands they perform tasks for her but they are in support of her all-encompassing creation power and like i said i was uh, writing and producing the the princess thieves at this point and i was like yep i'm on the right track yep Yep, this is all in line with exactly what I've been doing. And this film, because it was uh, came out during the tail end of that, made that production better for me. Like, I was clearer in what I was aiming for. I'm extremely gratified at being given this gift at that key time. Although I do really like the fact that Gwen is also her own hand, that she is able to act on her own behalf. Yeah. I have crossed the horizon to find you I know your name They have stolen the heart from inside you Does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. So, yeah, then they go back to the island, everything's hunky dory, and she is manages to be to retain that friendship with Maui in a way that uh, allows them to have this mutual respect of each other. Maui gets his groove back and uh, has completed his own art because all he really had to do was was this was actually uh, putting his faith in someone else. It's not about you again. That wonderful message from that overlooked um, Marvel film Doctor Strange, which uh, I still don't love the whole film but that one bit of it I adore because Maori's had to do a bit of self-realization as well in the same way that Moana's had to come to terms with her identity not as someone who has been given a special power and task and responsibility but as someone who's like again she goes and seizes the heart from the ocean to go and do what she feels is hers to do and Maui himself like and declares I am Moana. I like that Maui similarly gets a similar proclamation of I am Maui. 
before when he goes out to potentially to sacrifice himself, lose his powers forever, lose the thing that he's pulled identity from mm. up until now, he gets that same sense of confidence in his own identity that is not built around that the myth of who he is or the tool that allow, allows him to do all the cool mm. things that myths were, made, myths were made of. It's very key that his uh, hook gets so horribly damaged in the uh, penultimate confrontation that you know when he comes back he is very much in the knowledge that he like he may just be able to live through this possibly but his hook won't so he's sacrificing that part of himself mm. yeah and also that Tefiti restores it for him in mm. the same way that she restores Moana's boat because it was never about the hook yeah <laughs> indeed so yeah th- this is uh Absolute triumph of a, of a uh, film. And then that, that ending moment that crystallises who Moana is and mm. what she's bringing yeah. for her people is the, the the chief's stones pile that's at the top of the island that ever since they settled, every chief has laid a slab on this pile to show how long they've been there mm. and to represent their island constantly growing taller and what Moana puts on there is a conch shell this is this mirrors the opening scene where she's a toddler and the the ocean is calling to her it draws her to the ocean by leaving her a little trail of conch shells to find and it specifically being this type of shell that I, I mean I don't know whether they're doing this as a deliberate Lord of Flies reference but the Probably fact that not. the well the 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 what the conch shell represents in that is leadership. It yeah. is the thing that if you hold it and you use it to call people, they will listen to you. And that's what her leadership is going to be. It's but I believe calling that people on. Concept predates William Golding. Oh, I would imagine it does. Yes, yeah. <laughs> perhaps to even Polynesian <laughs> okay. mythology. So let's say that Golding and Musker and Clements were drawing on the same pool. There you there. go. <laughs> but the fact that she's put the conch shell on the pile, you can't put another stone on top of that. I was just going to say, yeah, that's that's the end. That's the pinnacle, uh, and it. It's a completely different element. The conscious of the sea. Mm-hmm. It has a very feminine quality to it, shall we say? And 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 as you say, it's it is the marshalling call. It is the, uh, the the thing that will gather more tribes. So that suggests that it's not just going to be the people of Motanui who uh, who journey out there. Absolutely. And then, like I said, the fact that her mother and father go with her in the group of people who do choose to leave and voyage on, she's having drawn strength and healing from witnessing the ancestral line of people who came before her, she now gets to found a line of people who will come after her. <laughs> In the production materials, Musker and Clements talk about how the Polynesians sending out scouts to faraway islands in simple boats using their honed navigation skills was the equivalent, in their time, thousands of years ago, of us sending men to the moon in the 20th century. Moana's people face ecological disaster and even extinction as a result of the greed of Maui, who brought men fire. A mythological distinction he shares with Prometheus... This equates him with scientific advancement as well as our own abuse and exploitation of the world. 
and the earth, personified by a mother figure, is angry at how she has been treated. Something needs to be done, and fast. One very clear reading of Moana for me is simply this. The balance of the world shifted to the static, like a stone, some time ago, with anger, wrath and ruin expressed through fire. We took, and now we suffer. To establish a new balance, fluidity needs to be introduced. We give, and so we thrive. Now, stability, rigidity, earth and stone are not inherently masculine in and of themselves, but within our society we have coded these things as masculine. Fluidity, emotionality, water, compassion, these things are not inherently feminine. But again, we have, over eons, culturally speaking, deliberately coded these things as feminine and held the two in contrast, encouraging boys to be one thing and girls to be the opposite, when in fact a well-balanced person has what we would perceive as both masculine and feminine traits. Moana suggests that finding that balance will advance us as a species. At this crux point in our history, we face three choices. One excludes the other two, and that is to ignore the troubles on our planet, even as disaster looms. Essentially, Chief Tui is choosing the just-ignore-it approach as the coconuts rot and the fish die. The second choice is to journey out away from our island planet to the moon to Mars and beyond our solar system. The third is to atone for our past sins and mistreatment of the planet and look to healing the harms done. And Moana facilitates both of these second choices at once. Because if we don't take that difficult responsibility of the third option, the ruin we heaped upon this planet will just follow us to the next. It is this balance of keeping the place we live in healthy, whilst also journeying outwards, that will allow us, as our ancestors reach new islands, to journey to new stars. One additional thing that is worth mentioning, uh, just on a production note, because, again, we're in the era of Disney history where actual production information is real scarce on the ground. Mm. Uh, And even in a with a Blu-ray like this, where they do put a lot of features about the production, they it's still very curated. There (laughs) were apparently some significant story changes needed mid-production on this, and I've never seen it specified what those changes were. Usually you want those changes to be happening before you enter actual production, but because the scenario is just always a nightmare. In this case, it necessitated pulling in the help of Big Hero 6's directors to just help co-direct stuff for a while because Musker and Clements were already crunching beyond their limit. And in interviews, I've only heard the two describe the situation in very, very vague terms terms as a crisis with no additional detail but these are the kinds of production stories disney does not let out anymore clearly and it is a story i hope we get to hear someday because i'm sure it's an interesting one one can only speculate on on what what the uh the problem was it it couldn't be that they were at this point it was still very maui focused and they were like right let's make it more moana focused 
It probably, like, probably not. Like, I would guess that sort of fix was Way figured out, out yeah, earlier. Yeah. And these are the kinds of things that most every Disney and Pixar film do run into, and certain ones succeed in overcoming it, and certain ones don't. Obviously, this one did, hmm. but uh, like, there's there's always a lot to those stories, and. I hope, given that this one did end up being a successful one, I hope it's one that Disney lets out eventually, or one that Sweatbox style comes out on its own. <laughs> so what you've done there is lay down a, a tasty tidbit of, uh, there's more to this, we will eventually hopefully find out. Yeah, like this, if nothing else, that, that sort of little tiny clue that ekes out in little interviews and then is never spoken of again mm. is a hint to the kind of production stories that are still happening constantly on all of these films and they are there and like we're not being told them and i wish we were but they're all there there's always a lot more to the production of all of these than disney lets out from here on all right. i mentioned earlier that this is a very standard disney story that is heavily flavored with Polynesian imagery and culture. And like the songs are flavored with a lot of Polynesian style and a lot of authentic style as well, but they are still functionally like Broadway show tunes that have been like retrofitted and flavored with that style heavily. And we, we keep talking about like, look to 2026 where there's going to be even further progress. And I, there was one uh, video that I kind of watched while I was trying to just like put together how I was feeling about this movie. I, I think the, uh, it's called like Moana versus Coco, uh, and I, th- I think it, the channel's called like Shafrilas Productions or something. Mm-hmm. But the the gist of what they expressed there, and I kind of liked that perspective a lot, is that like Coco is an example of just what uh, the next step of on this arc can look like. It is a film that is so deep, like where the culture that they are depicting is so deeply ingrained in the DNA of the story mm-hmm. that you can't swap the nouns out because the story doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And the songs in that movie are the music of that culture. They're not show tunes flavored that way. They're like, they're the songs from that place. And people still had like, there are lots of people who had some issues with representation in Coco as well. Again, that's not Coco. Moana was not the destination at the end of our journey to solve cultural appropriation. And Coco isn't either, but Coco is a not is like a really neat sign of what the next step forward on that arc of progress looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think crucially, and obviously we'll go into more on this when we talk about Coco Look to the production team. Look at the people that they bring in at the production level. Casting Mm -hmm. is important and representation that people get to see on the screen is important and consultation is very important. But those people ultimately are going to be very aware of where their paycheck is coming from and very aware of the fact that uh, that what they portray is just what people see. The -the behind-the-scenes stuff is what needs to come in. And that was so fundamental to what made Black Panther the achievement that it was. And they need Mm -hmm. more of that. In conclusion, the best possible reason for the live-action and photorealistic remakes of hand-drawn animated classics is to address and do their best to fix the issues of their previous incarnations made as they were in simpler, less aware times. The Lion King, for example, is worth re-exploring with Simba and Nala simply voiced by actors of colour. 
it feels like there would be no point ever really remaking Moana in live action, but that this film serves as a remake of sorts to an unexpected and often maligned animated classic. Exactly as Dan said earlier, Lindsay Ellis made a very fine and acerbic point some time ago regarding Moana effectively retreading the same ground as Pocahontas, which you'll remember from our show, and from a lot of very valid talk elsewhere, had some representation issues to put it mildly, and that film was made 24 years ago. No matter what Disney's business department do in their bid to be the most powerful company the world has ever seen, certainly within the entertainment field, they are there already. If their artists continue to craft works like this, as inspiring and inclusive as Moana is, with this level of astonishing beauty and this positive a message, their long and troubled journey of treading on the toes of the cultures they represent is at least moving away from blunt stereotypes and towards their remit of faithfully conveying the mythology and culture of the unsung peoples of the world. Always through a filter of Disney, it is key to take that into account each time. Baby steps, always, but baby steps in the right direction. And I'm going to reiterate here that there is an extremely strong story for boys to follow regarding Maui. You can still be a champion, you can still be a badass, you can still be everything about a chosen one. You can still be important and people will still think you're awesome if what you're doing is giving someone else a chance to shine. Especially someone who badly needs that chance. And once again, this greatly informed on my conclusions in The Princess Thieves. It was going to end the way it ended anyway, but Moana helped crystallize my intentions. Here's just a little clip. I shall miss you, Robin. I shall miss you too. But you know, this is fine. We had an exciting week for both of us to remember. And you got that holiday you wanted. I should have liked to take you to the French Riviera. It's going to be a lot nicer once all the monsters have gone. Oh, it sounds enchanting. Oh, it is. I I mean, I hear it was. I've never been off this island in any dimension. Then we shall agree to meet there together. Someday. Agreed. Ah. Keep an eye on what I'm doing. I will. Try not to steal away any more girls. We don't like it. It's creepy. I'll never steal another. She laced her fingers into his, and kissed the top of his head. Fine thief you turned out to be. And you can find, download, and listen to the entirety of The Princess Thieves from Bandcamp, priced at $12. It's also available on Patreon, where you will find an additional bonus show of all the bonus behind-the-scenes chat 
that we and Dan got up to on Frozen, Big Hero 6, and Moana. It's 45 bonus minutes of jawboning about Disney. Weird now watching Kristen Bell in the recording booths because it feels like Eleanor Shellstrop has snuck into a place <laughs> she should not be. <laughs> and if you're at the $15 level, you get a shout-out every week. So once again, thank you very, very much to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, David Sheely, Kevin Vaye, Daniel Solgero, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Daniel, thank you so much for coming back once again. Um, of course, thanks for pleasure. having me, as always. And where can people find your work? Uh, they can find me in probably one of two places, either the YouTube channel New Frame Plus, in which I... Uh, talk about video game animation and analyze it or uh in a more casual setting on a channel called Playframe, which i do with my wife carrie which is sort of more let's play stuff every day and it's that's that one's just for fun what are you currently let's playing uh i've been this is almost appropriate in a weird tangential way i've been very very slowly making my way through the kingdom hearts series for the last year oh so and <laughs> and in the low like in the kind of boring points where I'm just fighting a bunch of stuff, I've just been rattling off a bunch of Disney film trivia, most of which I've learned <laughs> like because we're doing these podcasts. So uh, it, this podcast <laughs> series has fed directly into my like <laughs> my Kingdom Hearts playthrough, which has been fun. Nice. Well, I'm with Maui when I say you're, you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> We will be back sometime soon with Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2 shows, no doubt. And then uh, uh, whatever Disney has in store for us in future. In the meantime, next week, something not Disney. <laughs> so I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Now the song I have to listen to every time I finish Hamilton, just to reground myself. It's Jordan Fisher and one of the greatest treasures in modern music, Lin Manuel Miranda. I see what's happening, yeah. Face to face with greatness and a strange. You don't even know how you feel. It's adorable. It's nice to see the humans never change. Open your eyes, let's. Yeah. Yes, 
Phenomenon. The tide, the grass, the ground. Oh, that was me. I was messing around. I killed a snake. I buried its guts. Sprouted a tree. Now you got coconuts. What's the lesson? What is the takeaway? Don't mess with Maui when he's on a breakaway. And the tapestry here in my skin is a map of the victories I win. Look where I've been. I make everything happen. Look at that mean mini Maui. Just tickety tap and singing and scratching, flipping and snapping. People are clapping, hearing me rapping. Bring the chorus back. Hey! Well, anyway. 